Welcome to Sibylline Podcasts, part of our insight series where we aim to provide relevant, timely and actionable analysis in a discursive format. We hope you enjoy listening and welcome any feedback. Please visit our website for more insight series updates and as always, like, subscribe and share. Hello and welcome to the Sibylline Podcast Series. I'm Alex Parsons, the Lead Analyst for Americas. And today we're going to be talking about recent events in South Africa. With me to discuss those are Benedict Manzin, our Sub-Saharan African Regional Analyst, and Edie Lipton, our Associate Analyst for Sub-Saharan Africa. It's a complicated picture, isn't it? So perhaps, Edie, you could help us by talking us through what's been happening in the recent space of unrest in South Africa. Absolutely. So on the 29th of June, the Constitutional Court found former President Jacob Zuma guilty of violating his order to appear before a judicial panel investigating allegations of corruption during his time as president. In response, Zuma launched several legal challenges in an attempt to prevent his arrest. The court accepted to hear his application to have his 15-month sentence set aside. He then used this decision to argue that his apprehension should be delayed. But this request was heard and denied on the 9th of July, catalyzing the violent protests in his support. So when the contempt of court sentence was passed down, supporters of Zuma gathered outside his home in Nicandla and began protesting in a bid to prevent his arrest. The more violent protests then began on the 9th of July in KwaZulu-Natal province and spread to Gauteng province, including Johannesburg on the 11th of July. The protests continued despite being condemned by President Cyril Ramaphosa as an assault on democracy. So protesters took to the streets and inflicted major damage to cities, costing an estimated 50 billion rand. Hundreds of businesses were forced to shut, shops were looted and restaurants were burned. At least 40,000 businesses were impacted and 150,000 jobs put at risk. So protests was burned, infrastructure and blocked Mui River Toll Plaza, which links the port of Durban to Gauteng, the economic centre of South Africa. Durban was particularly targeted by looting and vandalism, and over 215 people were reported to have been killed in the protests. So neighbourhoods responded to the protests by forming militias in an attempt to protect their communities' businesses. Initially, 2,500 South African National Defence Forces were deployed, but fears over food and water insecurity and fuel shortages led to Ramaphosa's decision to ramp deployment up to 25,000 troops in KwaZulu-Natal and Gauteng provinces. Thanks very much, Edie. That's fascinating. A lot of moving parts there. Ben, perhaps I could ask you to give us a few thoughts on the key drivers of this unrest. Why have we got to this point? Absolutely. Well, it's certainly fair to say that the arrest of Zuma acted as the initial spark for the unrest. Zuma benefits from high levels of local support from his ethnic constituency, the Zulu community. In fact, it was the ANC's efforts to win over Zulu voters, which was a key driving factor in his nomination to the party's presidential candidacy prior to his election in 2009. So it was always likely that Zuma's arrest, an arguably inevitable consequence of any genuine anti-corruption investigation into his administration, would prompt unrest from the Zulu people, who are spread in the highest numbers throughout KwaZulu-Natal and Gauteng, largely due to uh, the presence of the the country's commercial capital, Johannesburg, and its connection to Port of Durban in KwaZulu-Natal. However, while this may have been the initial spark of the unrest, its intensity and, and characteristics were clearly a product of the rising levels of domestic unrest connected to the significant economic challenges faced by much of the population. COVID-19 has significantly disrupted the life of much of the population as South Africa has imposed some of the most stringent lockdown conditions in the region. 
sometimes violently enforced, even resulting in the application of lethal force resulting in some deaths. This exacerbated pre-existing economic challenges and has driven over 32% of the population into unemployment. Additionally, South Africa's public services continue to suffer from the legacy of mismanagement under Zuma, with the National Energy Utility ESCOM still struggling to match generation capacity to demand, which results in frequent blackouts and is one of a number of examples in the way in which many impoverished South African citizens feel let down by the state. The importance of these factors is not only evident based on the most basic observations that not everyone that engaged in the protest and looting was Zulu, but also based on the characteristics of the demonstration. Durban, in particular, for example, has repeatedly seen outbreaks of xenophobic violence in recent years, often connected to organisations of former or current truckers that believe that migrant workers are undermining their wages and job security. In these recent protests, we saw that while calls for the release of Zuma began to prompt violent protests on the 9th of July, it was at this time that these same groups established blockades on major roadways and conducted attacks on migrant communities, with at least one victim reporting that groups had gone door to door in, in some areas attacking people. Additionally, while unrest was present across major cities, violence was highest in the townships and communities where protests over poor delivery of public services, such as and housing and unemployment, are most commonly concentrated, such as Alexandra and Soweto around Johannesburg. Thank you very much, Ben. Again, a lot of different things going on there. I suppose particular interest to our listeners would be what the longer term implications of this unrest are. I mean, clearly there's been a lot of disruption in localised areas in terms of traffic and violence and and uh, damage to property and so on. But what do you think is likely to be the mid to longer term prospects? Well, just coming off of something you mentioned just there, and follows on from a point Edie made earlier about the extensive property damage, is the the cost of the looting and and the protests in the immediate term. This will have longer term effects relating to investors and companies' decision making about how much a presence and potential exposure that they want in South Africa. But it also presents a, a more immediate challenge relating to how this damage is paid for and the efforts made to ensure recovery in these areas. For example, damage to businesses threatens to exacerbate unemployment in these areas, with some estimating around 50,000 job losses, increasing the very pressures that made the protests as violent as they were. So the government will likely have to invest not only to support the cleanup and recovery, but also increase assistance for affected communities to reduce the threat of, of, of future action, with officials already discussing potential basic income grant. This is one of the last things the government wants to be spending money on right now. It has already got very high levels of debt and wants to actually cut back on spending and increase investment in areas to drive growth. So this very much feels like a step backwards in that regard. Also, just speaking about um, unrest in the immediate aftermath, this is currently largely reduced with the military deployment set to continue through the coming month and and the action having successfully basically stabilised the situation by last weekend. But there remains developments in the Zuma case, which may act as additional flashpoints for unrest. For example, at the time of recording, the Constitutional Court is still to make a decision on Zuma's appeal of his sentencing for contempt of court. Additionally, there is the primary corruption trial uh, for Zuma in Peter Maritzburg, which has been delayed until August. Neither of these events are likely to see a return to the same levels of unrest we saw last week, with security forces clearly more proactively aware of the threat and having deployed heavily around the courthouse connected to the trial uh, when it last met on the 19th of July. But this still presents a threat of smaller, potentially disruptive protests in the coming weeks. In the longer term, there are concerns about how this may impact policymaking in South Africa going forward. President Ramaphosa began this year 
or at least in the early first half of this year, making real progress in enacting reforms which have been uh, demanded by international business community and major lenders for a long time. And we saw the impact of this driving a significant rise in the value of the RAND through 2021. However, these policies, at least in the short term, could cause some economic pain with efforts to contain spending resulting in an effective wage freeze for public sector workers whose salaries will now be squeezed by inflation. While attempts to reform state-owned enterprises and increase private participation could drive further job losses, at least initially, both of these areas present opportunities for likely confrontations with unions. And we've seen other examples around the region of how bouts of unrest and concerns about how unrest have impacted willingness to pursue these potentially confrontational policies. In Nigeria last year, when we saw significant unrest during the hashtag NSARS police reform protests, this also resulted in outbreaks of violent looting and the government became highly concerned that further economic strain could prompt a repeat of this action. As such, the government pulled back from plans to lift subsidies on fuel, maintaining this costly drain on government reserves and impeding its capacity to spend on needed investments. Therefore, there are serious questions to ask about whether South Africa will follow suit. Either they will have to risk confrontation with unions and outbreaks of further such violence in the coming months, or they will have to pull back from reforms, undermining investor confidence and threatening to worsen the existing debt challenges. Thank you very much, Ben. I had just a couple of final questions. Those are quite, you know, potentially serious implications in the context of, you know, the economy and the and the business and investment climate. But in terms of overall stability, is it fair to say that these these incidents of violence and clashes between different parts do represent different parts of the ANC? Do they represent a sort of serious and terminal split in the ANC and therefore perhaps a a real shake-up in the democratic landscape in South Africa, or is that going too far? I think it's definitely fair to say that this action could impact some areas of the ANC's support base. It may impact its support from the Zulu community, but I think the impact of the current corruption trials and investigations is that this is likely to weaken the support of the faction around Zuma and key figures like Ace Magashule, the former general secretary of the party. So with these investigations going on, I think we are seeing power shift sort of decisively towards Ramaphosa. Do these uh, splits exist? Yes, but power now really resides with Ramaphosa. And I think we all see the party sort of realign itself to reflect that. So yeah, there are elements where we might see a, a drop drops in support, but but no, I don't, I don't think we're likely to see a, a definitive and long lasting split within the party as um, people basically work out where, where they need to go to get their bread buttered, essentially. Very interesting. So actually, one could see these incidents as almost the, the death throes of, of the Zuma period and, you know, greater strengthening of the, say, the Ramaphosa wing. And that actually potentially bodes well if, as you say, he's able to return to that policy agenda so favoured by international investors. As you say, he has a number of challenges before him if he's to get back to that agenda. Ben, Aidy, thank you very much indeed for that. Fantastic. And now, for a look at events to watch in the week ahead, let's start with Japan. The Olympics start on the 23rd of July. There's likely to be a heavy security presence and traffic restrictions around venues, and so there's bound to be a bit of disruption. As been widely reported, the Olympics are highly contentious in Japan, and there will 
almost certainly be protests about the fact that games are being held at all and that increasing numbers of visiting athletes are testing positive. So participation has already been undermined to some extent and that may worsen. On the 24th of July in Europe and North America, there are expected protests for what has become known as Worldwide Rally for Freedom, a series of events aimed at protesting lockdown measures across the world. This is the third year that uh, such events have taken place, but they're mostly peaceful. But there is the risk of far-right groups, anti-lockdown protesters, and some clashes with police as attempts to disperse protesters take place. On the 25th of July in Somalia, there is an election for the Upper House of Parliament. This is significant due to the election of delegates who will eventually vote for the president. There is a high likelihood of allegations of fraud and potential protests, particularly in Mogadishu. Lastly, in Colombia, the introduction by the government of a new draft fiscal reform has partially triggered new protests, and the National Strike Committee has called for these. Many Colombians have nevertheless rejected the calls for roadblocks and violent protests as they complain about the level of disruption to their daily lives. There will nevertheless be traffic disruption in, in Bogotá, in the areas of Monumento a los Héroes and Puerta de Américas. But to be honest, the level of violence is going to be less than it has been of late. But the main areas of activity or focuses for uh, violence will be clashes between young people and security forces. Thank you very much for listening to this podcast. If you'd like to any more information, please do get in touch via our email, info at sibyline.co.uk.